Hello and welcome to the shortlist episode seven. Time flies when you're having fun and when you're listening to some of the gurus of the bloodstock world. The shortlist, of course, is the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. And the FBAA was established to maintain and develop and improve standards, integrity and service provided by bloodstock agents in Australia. And two of the best join me today, Peter Toomey from Waddle Bloodstock and Mark Player from International Thoroughbred Solutions. Gentlemen, hello. Thanks for joining me on the shortlist. Thanks for having me, Shark. Very pleased to be uh, jumping on the board. It's great to, great to be able to have a venue to, or vehicle to talk to people. It's wonderful. It's nice, isn't it? And I think that some of the feedback that we're getting from people outside of the traditional sort of bloodstock game, you know, the punters, the curious that are racing fans has been fantastic. And what they've loved is not only hearing about uh, different issues and, and topics relevant to, to bloodstock trade here in Australia, but also the backgrounds of, of the different agents that we get on and, I think it's the easiest way to start for those that aren't familiar. Mark, I might begin with you. Could you just give, give us a little bit of a rundown as to the bloodstock, I guess, the exciting background of Mark Player and International Thoroughbred Solutions and what you've been up to in your working life? Mick, I'm not sure it's exciting. It's certainly different sometimes, but um, I, I um, was, was brought up in regional New South Wales in Goulburn, um, parents were both school teachers, but I had a father who had a love of going to the races and every opportunity we'd get, we'd go to the races. And I then went off to university and took a different path in agricultural science um, and ended up working in New Zealand and then was offered a role to establish New Zealand Thoroughbred Marketing back in 1988 when that was established. Um, and so I got that up and going for the, the breeders and the sales companies in New Zealand. And from there was headhunted to come across to Racing Victoria and um, was involved with setting up Supervobus and those sort of things for Racing Victoria and also doing all the recruitment of the international runners for the Spring Carnival and so on. So the, my first year of doing that was media puzzle. Um, so it really was a, a great year to start, um, but sort of dealing with Mr. World and um, all, all the challenges that that entailed. So that was a, a, a part of the journey. And then uh, three years later, was headhunted to go up to Hong Kong to work for the Hong Kong Jockey Club and spent six years full-time there running the international races, so bringing the horses from all around the world to Hong Kong twice a year for that, um, building a couple of extra races into that program for, for the, um, the sprint and, and so on, and then uh, also running the, the program for the international sale in Hong Kong, so buying the yearlings all around the world, getting them prepared, and then running the sale in Hong Kong. Um, so did that for six years full time. And then it was time to come home with family to Australia and, and really sort of set up something different. It went out on my own, continued to run the international racing side of the, the for Hong Kong Jockey Club uh, through until the end of uh, well, really the start of the pandemic. Um, and then it was doing bloodstock work through that period and also consulting for various companies, be it Ascot Racecourse in the UK or Goodwood or Breeders' Cup and lots of organisations like that. And then um, with the start of sort of COVID, really concentrating more and more on bloodstock and then um, joined the Bloodstock Agents Federation at the end of the end of 2020 and have really enjoyed it since. 
bit of a jet-setting life. I don't know. You're sort of playing it down a bit here. Mark's saying it's not exciting. I think that's a lot more exciting than ag science and playing with cows and pastures and whatever else. I think you pulled the right rein. <laughs> I definitely pulled the right rein. I've definitely <laughs> seen the inside of more airports than I'd care to count um, and, and spent a lot of time in the air. I'd, I'd hate to think of the number of hours in the air, but I, I would say I've been very privileged to have been able to attend uh, basically every great race meeting around the world at some stage um, and had the, the ability not just to attend it, but to be up close and to see how they operate, what they're trying to do and what they're trying to achieve. And the same with the yearling sales and so on. I mean, um, you know, I've had varied roles um, prior to the pandemic. I used to go to uh, South Africa and inspect the yearlings on the farms around South Africa and grade those for the, the yearling sales as an independent uh, uh, looking across the process. So yeah, I spent many a, a wonderful time, you know, sort of two or three weeks at a time driving around the all of South Africa, going to the farms and so on. So um, it has been a, a, a wonderful journey for me, um, but I'm not sure, not quite sure there's a set of memoirs in it. Well, the thing I love is that you, you take that international experience and you seem to keep bringing it back to Australia to make our industry better. So that's a that's a great thing. Pete, tell us about Waddle Bloodstock and about your background in bloodstock trade and the racing game. Um, well, yeah, I grew up in country New South Wales. Like Mark, I was actually down um, Cootamundra Way. Um, my parents, um, well, family, I've got a lot of accountants in my family, a very economic mind or numbers sort of mind. And I was going down that path at university and remember my mum saying to me, don't be an accountant, your father's too and like the, the family love on both sides was horse racing. You know, my, I've got the 1968 Bonbon Cup here at home, one of my grandfather. And um, there was always the passion. And I just decided, okay, well, let's take this passion that I have and family has and make it a career. So um, after university, I, I travelled to Ireland and worked at Kildangan Stud, which is Darley's Stud in Ireland. Um, came back to Australia down in Melbourne and actually got a job in the accounts department of International Racehorse Transport, IRT, and, and worked in accounts and then switched over into um, organising the flights to and from New Zealand and to the USA. And I remember organising Anna Marto when she went over to the US uh, mm. to run in one of the, I think it was the Florida Oaks or one of the Oaks over there many years ago. Um, and at the time, I did some work experience with Damon Gabbity and Vin Cox, and I just loved sort of the bloodstock side. Um, and it was that point I applied for the internship at, at Inglis and had my interview with Mark Webster, Jonathan Darcy, and, and, and got the gig there. So that was 2008. I started as an intern, um, worked under Jonathan, um, looking at yearlings, um, did that for a couple of years. And then I sort of got called in and asked if I, I'd be interested with my wife on moving to Singapore to open up a Asia office and, and I guess service um, the company could see quite a large growth in China and Hong Kong and other places. So Singapore was the base where I was based for four or five years. And yeah, just like Mark, the amount of planes and trains and motorcycles you ended on in were just phenomenal. I you know, went everywhere, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Korea, all over the place, um, seeing some phenomenal places, uh, meeting some great people, um, and really was sort of a buyer's um, and buyer's agent or really buyer recruitment it was to get buyers from Asia down to Inglis 
and Australian sales to buy horses. So that's where I was for eight, eight years as that. Um, and at that point, um, I felt a growing need for particular clients needing greater service. So that's when I started up Waddle Bloodstock. Um, and yeah, I have some Australian-based clients, but still Waddle Bloodstock is mainly aimed at, at assisting overseas and really Asia-based owners purchase horses from Australia and, and take up to Asia. Before we get stuck into to talking more about the Asian market and, and why Australia plays such an important role in Asian thoroughbred racing, I think it's worth noting, and we get a few younger people listening to this, and I've had a few emails saying, oh, you know, do I have to have been from a racing background to get into racing? And I think it's great that, that both of you gentlemen are from, I guess you'd say, not obvious racing backgrounds. It's not like, you know, you had them in the backyard or you know, there was an interest there but that has spawned a, a fantastic career in, in both your cases. And I think that's, that's really important to note because racing is a great sport and a great industry like that. You can attack it from different angles and you can come in and once you're in, who knows where you can go. It uh, takes you all around the world. It, it truly is one of the industries in the world where somebody that can come in with, with no experience, but as long as they show passion, desire, drive, that it can take them anywhere. Um, and there's so many examples of it that people that Peter and I would meet all around the world who've come from this incredibly diverse background but have a common passion and a love for the horse. I think that's where it starts, Pete, and then it goes from there, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think, yeah, if a willingness to get out there, put yourself out there, learn from people um, and make that passion and certainly don't know for myself, it doesn't feel like work. You know, when you, when you love the sport, you're following it all the time. Yeah, we're pretty privileged to call this work. Indeed we are. Now, you've both spent a lot of time in Asia and sort of got the theme of the, the show today. Let's start with a really basic question. Why is the Australian thoroughbred industry so critical to the Asian racing jurisdictions? Are we, are we more than just a, a feeder for their horse stock? Pete, you start. Well, I'd say um, a number of those major, um, I guess, exporting countries that Australia has, like Hong Kong, um, Singapore, um, Malaysia, Macau, none of those jurisdictions have any breeding. Malaysia had a very small breeding industry, but it was tiny. So a lot of those places are sort of, um, they've just got the racetrack. They don't have the infrastructure to breed horses or they don't have the grass um, and the land and the expertise to do it. So they are looking for, you know, the best horses for their jurisdictions. And the Australian horse has stood the test of time in those areas. Um, you know, their abilities for places like Hong Kong and Singapore, they can import horses from wherever they want in the world. And they do. Australia is so important because the horses from Australia seem to do really well up there. They thrive. Um, you know, a lot of those jurisdictions are based around sort of sprinters, milers, and Australia seems to fit that really well. Is there a, something I, about the, the physical makeup of the Australian thoroughbred that, that makes it more to, to the Asian climate? Are we, are we, do we breed adaptable horses here? Is that as, as straightforward as it is? I think, we, I think we've, it's a variety of things with the individual horses. Um, Pete certainly touched on the sprinter milers, and that's critical within Asia. I mean, it's, they are 
regions that are based around those, that type of racing. And, and it also, it's also very hard to have a strong staying program for racing jurisdictions throughout Asia. It's hard to have a really strong program of mile and a half, two mile races that to just get the conditioning into the horses from the training facilities is difficult. But um, I think the, the real qualities of the Australian thoroughbred that you'd keep coming back to is its durability, its toughness, um, mental soundness. Um, you know, we've been incredibly lucky with to, to have a reputation that we produce horses that can cope with the rigours of living in the Asian and being trained in the Asian environments. Um, spending a lot of time in their boxes, um, out on the track for a short time each morning, not much in the afternoon. Um, that temperament aspect is so important from it. And I think, as Peter said, that the test is actually in the fact that it just keeps happening year after year, that in those major racing jurisdictions in Asia, Australian horses just have this outstanding reputation. Mark, I think most Australian racing fans would find Hong Kong, if they haven't been there, and, and probably those that have been there sort of leave with their eyes wide open and they're the uh, same as their mouths, just in shock of the number of people and the sheer interest in the sport. We know culturally that gambling is an important part of the Asian culture, an important part of the, uh, the Hong Kong racing and what keeps it going. But culturally, where does, where does racing sit in a place like Hong Kong? You know, having a good racehorse is a sign of prestige. Do you feel the impact of racing outside of the track? Oh, certainly. It's, um, Hong Kong lives and breathes racing. Um, it's, it's the most amazing thing. Um, you know, you'd get into a, a taxi in town and you'd, you'd give the address of where you'd live. Um, and we all lived in Hong Kong Jockey Club premises and every taxi driver would know straight away that you were Jockey Club. And so straight away they were looking for tips. They were looking for information on what horses were running, um, what's going on. That's just going home in a taxi and, you know, me speaking pidgin Cantonese and, and the, the taxi driver doing the best they could to talk. Um, and that was just the very tip of the iceberg. Uh, I mean, membership of the Hong Kong Jockey Club is prestigious. Having a permit to own a horse in Hong Kong is even more prestigious. Um, a class five winner in Hong Kong is incredibly exciting for the owners. Um, for us, it's probably like having a you know a winner at Maui or Stall or somewhere in a in a midweeker. Um, it's that quality of horse, but for them, it's a, it's a you know it's like winning a, a race at Flemington. Um, so the the standards that they set, the the excitement that they have about it is incredible, and it's it's the one one of the common things across society that everybody can talk about horses. Everyone can talk about the racing. Everyone aspires to go to the racing, um, and we have you know twice a week. It's the focus of everything that people do. Pete, what about your experience in Singapore? Where did racing fit there? I know that ownership was a little bit more accessible in Singapore. Yeah, that's, I guess, the, the big difference with between Hong Kong, where um, you need to be a Hong Kong Jockey Club member and you need to have a permit to race. In Singapore, it's really open to everyone. So anyone can be an owner. Um, it's pretty easy to set up. And there's still a number of expats or people based in Australia or New Zealand or the UK that do race horses in Singapore. Um, Singapore is onto its third racetrack. They did start in the centre of sort of town, um, like a happy valley right in the middle. Uh, it's moved out to Bukatima, now it's moved out to Kranji. Um, and it's a good setup there. Um, they're going under, you know, a bit of change at the moment. Um, they used to, you know, have around 950 to 1,000 races a year, um, about sort of 10 years ago, and that's dropped down and dropped down. Um, they've found it hard to compete for, um, I guess, 
their tote hasn't been as strong as Hong Kong. You know, betting turnover in Hong Kong is just phenomenal. It's just everyone bets on the tote. Uh, Singapore had a bit of an issue with illegal bookmakers. Um, and I remember at an Asian racing conference only you know, five or so years ago, the CEO of the Singapore Turf Club said that 80% of the whole money that's bet on Singapore racing doesn't go through their tote. It, it wow. went through illegal bookmakers. And so when you don't have money coming back into the industry via the tote, it makes it hard to maintain. They're having a real fight now, but it's, it's really hard for jurisdiction if you don't have you know, money that's been bet coming back into your industry. How important would it be fair to say that, wouldn't it, Pete? Hong Kong might be the crown jewel of Australian racing, but Singapore's the hidden diamond, isn't it? The facilities are wonderful. Yeah, you know, there is a passion for racing in Singapore, and uh, it's, it's just this opportunity that would be great to see it grow and really flourish. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it, it's very accessible. You know, I guess pre this uh, pandemic we had, you know, it was actually pretty easy just to fly up to Singapore, do a weekend or two of racing, fly back to Australia. You know, it's a seven or eight hour flight from uh, Sydney or Melbourne, um, English speaking, easy to get around, really clean, um, very some great restaurants, great bars. It's got a lot to love um, and they're racing. The prize money is still pretty good. You know, they run their restricted maidens for $75,000. So you, you send a young horse up there. Um, the prize money has taken a quite a large hit the last 18 months, which, you know, the, because they shut down their racing because of the pandemic. But you're exactly right. There, there is great opportunity there um, that just hasn't been realised yet. And facilities of, of outstanding quality for the horses and for patrons on course. I mean, going racing in, in both Singapore and Hong Kong is just is a wonderful experience for, for people. But um, the care and the attention and the facilities that the horses have are also second to none. It's outstanding the way both places have really developed quality facility for horses. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think the veterinary care they get, um, they're pretty meticulous. And you can even see that on the Hong Kong Jockey Club website with all the records, you know, particular horses, what they've done what their vetting's up to, the same with sort of the Singapore Turf Club. They are care for well, and certainly from a customer perspective, you know, the punters and people going on course, both clubs have fantastic, you know, facilities to watch the races and get involved. It's a bit of a critical time for Singapore racing from somebody sort of not super connected to it, but just watching the last few years and the loss of prominence of those important uh, international races that they build up you know the sprint and the the gold cup and whatnot and it used to draw horses from australia but also from hong kong uh, you've lost trainers like cliff brown coming out of there and as you say there's been prize money reductions is there a danger that singapore could slip off the the radar altogether in as far as the asian racing jurisdiction is concerned pete I think there is a possibility for it to lose its position. Um, you know, I guess from the people up there, um, and Mark would be familiar with too, he's probably seen the downfall of racing just across the border in Malaysia, um, which is just really struggling. I mean, I don't think there's hardly any horses that go from Australia or New Zealand to Malaysia anymore. Um, they really rely on the cast-offs from Singapore to go up there. And Malaysia was a very strong racing nation for, for many years. Um, so I think if, yeah, if Singapore does lose focus, um, doesn't understand its position within the sort of world racing and Asia racing, there, that is the possibility. I, I think they're going through 
a period of restructuring. Um, there is plenty of opportunity for them to, to grow again. If they get their customers right, you know, they're, they're incentivizing or getting sort of some big punters there and the product's good, I think people will come back. Um, but at the moment, it, it's really, you know, an interesting spot, I'd say, sort of plateaued off. Certainly, you know, the prize money levels uh, are way down and seeing that, you know, like a horse that I guess I bought for a client, uh, Arameo, who's running around Australia at the moment, he was one that I picked out for a client um, that went up to Singapore to aim to win the Singapore Derby two to three years ago when the Singapore Derby was worth a million dollars, running the Raffles Cup worth a million dollars. Well, those races are now only worth two hundred or $300,000. So they made the call of actually relocating that horse back to Australia where the prize money levels are better. And with that loss in prize money, you have a, a change of, I guess, recruiting when it comes to looking for horses to go to a place like Singapore, doesn't it? You know, a horse like Arameo, you probably wouldn't send to Singapore now. You'd, you'd lower the sights a little bit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I think the Singapore market, you know, an Arameo pops up now and he's more likely to get snapped up by Hong Kong, you know, group one placed um, three-year-old, you know, it was probably a bit of a coup to get a horse of that profile to go to Singapore at the time. Um, but yeah, they're getting snapped up by Hong Kong and the Singapore market. Yeah. Can't compete They're They're even struggling to compete against how strong the local market here is in Australia for tried horses. Mark, I was talking to a good friend the other day and, and he was sort of, ruining the fact that uh, one of his favourite horses has been sold off to Hong Kong. And he said, bloody hell, if they don't get retired to start at three, they're getting sold to Hong Kong. Uh, I think it's a, it's a bit of an opinion that a few people, particularly punters that really get into it and like following a favourite horse here or there, they share. In your opinion, do we sell too many horses to Hong Kong? Do we lose too many of our potential good horses to Hong Kong? It was very tough to ask an agent if we sell too many horses, Mick. Um, I think most of us as agents would probably no. say we don't quite sell enough. You know, we'd all, <laughs> always like to sell one more. But um, if we look at um, from the, the overview of the industry, um, it is challenging for, for Australia because our best horses are in so much demand and the prize money you know, is such an attractive proposition up there. Um, however, I, I would personally say that I'm finding it more difficult to source um, the horses from the, the upper grades in Australia because our prize money is so wonderful down here. Um, you know, if you, if you see a, a group one winner or, you know, sorry, not a group one, but a, a group three winner slash group two winner these days and you think you can target that for Hong Kong, I mean, you know, if you, if you can't find clients with, um, you know, million, million and a half dollars to start the bidding, um, you're not in the game. So there is a drain, but it's inevitable that our best horses are going to be targeted if those that don't quite, you know, we've got the, the ones, as you say, go to start and then the next level down, they are going to be targeted because they're the horses that can go up and compete in a Hong Kong derby or a Hong Kong mile and so on. And they will attract a lot of money. Um, I think probably the, the thing that offsets it now is we have such great coverage of Hong Kong racing and Singapore racing that I think our, a lot of our punters and our fans actually do continue to follow those horses. And I suppose that racing community 
community brings us all a little bit closer together. And that's a real positive in, in many ways to possibly offset the, the fact that we don't see them going around as, as much in Australia as we'd like. You can see that big boost in Australian prize money and, and you can see it playing out, as you say, you know, horses like Ayrton recently, they knocked back $2 million to chase, you know, golden eagles and the like because the, the prize money available this, this spring is, is so big. But on the flip side, you see the Hong Kong Jockey Club just slightly tweak and make changes to import criteria, you know, benchmark levels of ratings, just to lower them a little bit. It, it's a pretty, it's a pretty market-focused way to make sure that they're still getting the quality of stock through their doors, isn't it? Look, it is, and I think that the key thing they're wanting to do is to reward the owners that stump up the, the big money for the tried horses, that they can actually come in at a level they're straight away competitive, uh, and I think the their stats and the, the research they did tended to indicate that a lot of the horses coming in off a, you know, the, a 68, which was the original sort of the lowest benchmark rating that a, for Hong Kong that they could get in, those horses were struggling to win on their first four or five starts. Um, so they brought those down to 63. The 80s have come down to 75 and so on. So there's been a reduction. It's still the same horses that are eligible to go up, um, but it's giving them a better chance to compete in their first few starts in Hong Kong. And that's what they really want to see. They want to see uh, competitive racing right throughout. So much of their of the decision-making in Hong Kong at the upper levels in the jockey club is around making sure that racing is competitive so the turnover continues to be strong or continues to grow um, and that owners are rewarded. And they do other things like first win bonuses for imported horses and those sort of things. So, um, you know, they can pick up another million dollars Hong Kong and 150,000 Australian for a first win. Um, they go through into, a, into a, um, a class one and they pick up a $2 million bonus. Um, those sort of things are, are really important to keep quality going. And Hong Kong is all about quality and continuing to drive that, that emphasis on quality the whole way. They seem to have a pretty good grasp on, on innovation, but, but minor changes, things that make a tangible difference, as you've just explained. Pete, when you look at Australian racing and innovation, it seems that we just want to keep putting on a new race or throw another million dollars onto another group one. From, from your position where you sit, you've been around the world and, and had some great experiences elsewhere, is there an area that you would love to see focus on as far as innovation goes in Australian racing and breeding? Something that would have real tangible benefit that would be felt throughout the, uh, throughout the food chain? Um, I guess as a, what, you know, my experience in Asia, what they do very well um, is they're very good at getting people to the track and entertaining them for the whole day. You know, everyone's heard of Happy Valley in the beer garden there and, you know, getting people on course. There'd be other people at the club, uh, race clubs, obviously a lot smarter than me, you know, and know how to get people. But I think that's an area that I'd love to see happen. Um, I have sort of noted, you know, racing New South Wales or owners in New South Wales, there has been a, a, a good increase in, owners under the age of 50 in the last 10 years, but Victoria's a bit behind in that. Um, I, and I love going to Derby Day. I, I love all the fanfare and the traditions, but I do think we're an entertainment industry. We need innovation in that space, you know, getting people onto track and whether it's music that's going on or other things that are going on at the great time, we are there to entertain people. 
um, and going to the races, you know, as a youngster myself and, you know, the, the Bon Bon Cup being so important, I think we need to sort of get that back into the psyche of Australians and it being part of our sort of, I guess, our national pride. So I do think that, you know, we are competing for eyeballs, especially of the younger generation. I'd love to see, pe- you know, some innovation on keeping people and getting people on course. Connection with the horse is so important as well. And I was I was only talking to a, one of your colleagues, uh, Jeff Gordon, the other day, and we were sort of he was reminiscing about seeing horses in the street when he grew up, and every paddock could have a horse. And I could remember you know, going to my dad's legal practice in in Caulfield in school holidays, and there'd be horses coming out from work when we'd go to the post office to get the mail in the morning. And you don't see that anymore. And I think that's part of the picture as well is if people are used to horses and used to racing, if it's sort of there in their everyday life, they're more inclined to, to get curious and maybe get involved a little bit, maybe buy a share in a horse, maybe be a, a little bit more than just a once a year punter. Uh, look, there's a, a huge opportunity in that area. And um, it probably comes back to the, the first thing that Peter and I both talked about with the passion. Um, you know, the, the horse, the thoroughbred horse is an amazing creature. And the more we can do to bring that close to people, the more likely we are to have rusted on fans for generations. Um, Australia's done some amazing things for owners in particular to really bring them closer to the horse. I, I think we've led the world in, in the way we service owners, um, not just on racetracks, but also through the trainers with their updates through, you know, the, video profiles, um, voice messages, those sort of things, the communication that our owners get far exceeds anything else that happens anywhere around the world. Um, and it's something that I think we now take for granted. And I'm sure Peter sees it like I do. When, you, when you're dealing with clients from Asia, they almost feel like it's this overwhelming amount of information coming through on horses. They, they love it. They live and breathe it. They feel so connected to the horse. And then they have horses go up to their to the, some of the trainers in you know leading jurisdictions in Asia, and they're back to the sort of the you know a, a phone call when he's going to run and how he's going to go on the day, and that's about it. Um, you know we we we've been leaders Australia. We we sometimes don't give ourselves enough credit for the way we've done that. Can we do more in the entertainment space on a race course? Absolutely. I, I think one of our big challenges is going to continue to be how do we make access to race on race course entertainment affordable particularly for the younger generations um going to the races pre-covid was getting very expensive it'll be interesting to see how we come out the other side of that it's true the horse i think the horse is critical to anything any innovation that uh that takes place here in australia or anywhere around the world and and a single horse can really change the fortunes of a, of a jurisdiction and paid on no it very nearly changed the fortunes or the the potentially the breeding future of a little known Asian racing jurisdiction in Korea. Can you tell us a story about how Australia's best stallion nearly ended up in Korea? Yeah, I guess many years ago when I was working for Inglis, um, trying to get a few more Australian horses up into Korea um, and they were looking for some stallions to, to stand up there and a stallion came on the market, went through the Great Southern Bloodstock sale down in Melbourne, and it was written Tycoon. And there was a, a group of Korean breeders who got together to try and bid on the stallion. Um, I guess fortunately for the Australian industry, they were not successful, and the horse stayed here in Australia. 
um, and yeah, he's become one of the leading stallions here. So unfortunately for Korea, but you know, on the flip side, Australia's got a you know had a great stallion, and Mark yeah obviously had you know, been the buyer of Ole Kirk's been a great beneficiary as well. Absolutely, yeah. God bless Ritten Tycoon. <laughs> We might have been sending mares to Korea, Mark, if things had worked out a little bit differently. <laughs> Having been to the breeding farms in Korea, I'm, I think not only am I happy, but Britain Tycoon's also probably pretty happy to be here. <laughs> well, they, got, they got Delago Brom instead, didn't they? <laughs> they did. They did. There was a Delago Brom going okay up in on the deep sand in Korea, so they snapped him up, I think, a year later, and yeah, he, he covered his 40 to 50 mares a year, and lived his life out on Jeju Island in, in Korea. I think it's fitting we end the episode with a couple of jet-setting horses when we're talking to a couple of jet-setting <laughs> agents. Mark Player and Peter Toomey, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for your time. A fascinating thanks, chat, and I'm sure everyone that listens will agree with me. Thanks very much indeed, Mick. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Mick. All the best. And remember, if you're listening and you want any assistance with any of your bloodstock requirements, make sure you get in touch with an FBAA agent and you can find them all at bloodstockagents.com.au. Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of The Shortlist.